Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. My name is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps a fundraiser perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, meaningful relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong givers. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insights into the hearts, minds, and connections of their donors. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Podcast listeners, the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow is finally back on the schedule. We have several dates confirmed. Since 2014, our team has been providing high-quality one-day roadshows in partnership with nonprofit leaders who want to showcase their space and provide thought-provoking and highly interactive fundraising training in their nonprofit community. Our roadshows have been described by our guest as hands-down the best professional development experience that they have ever been a part of. This experience has been described as challenging assumptions with conversation-inspiring content and new ways of thinking. If you would like to register for one of the upcoming stops on the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, just visit the link in the show notes. Hi, Bradley. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. You and I have been trying to get this scheduled for, I think, weeks, maybe months. Uh, Your folks or my folks reached out to our each other's folks, and we got this scheduled, but I'm delighted to have you. Um, looking forward to this conversation. Uh, always enjoy the opportunity to make a new friend. So um, before we l- dive into our topic of conversation, whatever big idea or bold opinion you've got for us, how about we just ask you to uh, introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm Bradley Cook. I, am, I actually live in Las Vegas now. I'm originally from Atlanta, Georgia, and by way of Israel. And I am the executive director of a nonprofit that I started for whom I'm the primary fundraiser, except for some of my board members that I empower to go out there in the world and have always been an individual who's focused on uh, bringing good into the world and uh, creating simple solutions for complex problems based upon um, my background with disabilities and really find to, having to find shortcuts and hacks to, to, to excel and, and even outperform others. So I've brought that into the fundraising world now. So Bradley, you've got my curiosity going. How does a, and maybe this will come out come out of our conversation, but how does a person go from uh from Atlanta, Georgia to by way of Israel and then land in um in Las Vegas? That's a very interesting uh it's an interesting path. Yeah, fascinating. So I um I grew up in a very Jewish Israeli household. And- uh-huh. 
my, I always had a, a dream of spending high school in Israel. So my parents sent me there, fell in love with the country, wanted to join the Israeli Defense Force. My parents were like, um, you've already been accepted to university. How about you not join the military and uh, come back and go to college? So came back, got my um, undergraduate in special education, then my master's and my doctorate. And when I finished my doctoral work after teaching for seven years, I was like, mom, dad, I'm going back to Israel. So I uh, became an Israeli citizen. And that's actually where I started my first nonprofit uh, and then was going to get married. So um, my wife wanted to live in the States. So I ended up back here. It was a compromise. She wanted to li- I wanted to live there. She wanted to live here. And we compromised on living here. <laughs> and, and, and how did Vegas get in? I mean, because your, your, your boots are on the ground in Vegas right now. Is that what you yeah. were Yeah. Why Vegas? She liked the Vegas community. And plus, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a chill outside of the Strip. It's very yeah. calm in the desert, and it's just it's very low key as opposed to other larger cities where we've lived. Fascinating, fascinating. So, Bradley, we ask our guests to come on here with a big idea or bold opinion. Um, I don't always usually I, at this point. I don't know. I have no idea where the, what direction you're going to go in. Uh, that usually keeps me on my toes and um, actually ensures you more uh, more airtime than me. Because if uh, if I don't know what we're talking about, usually I don't have as much to say. Um, so, uh, so what do you got for us this morning? Yeah. So I think being the new year, uh, and we're in a new space, a new time, I I think I'm going to propose a a bold idea around the concept of time and say that most fundraisers are not using their time most effectively by focusing on their superpowers. And what I mean is that fundraisers are really good at fundraising. Um, but there are so many hats are required for fundraisers to wear in the in the research process rather than the donor engagement process. And if as fundraisers, when we're able to take the elements off of our plate that we don't need to do and to delegate them in a very like easy, fast, successful fashion um, that's not of high expense, uh, then we're able to do, to raise so much more money. Uh, for our organizations, spend so much more time with our families and have a more fulfilling career. So how do you want them to, uh, yeah, so this, this is probably going to go in some interesting directions. I suspect that you and I are going to be very much on the same page. So, uh, for the, for the average Joe or Jill, uh, fundraiser, who's got their boots on the ground this week, uh, what, what does that look like? Yeah, so I I would say the top part of it is exploring delegating specifically to um, offshore virtual assistants, uh, just to to give away the uh, my to give away the to give away the the whole answer to it, but a, a little story to go back behind this. So when I started my first nonprofit and our fundraising goal for the year was, was, was meager. It was like maybe $150,000 or something, um, yeah. but we were just getting started. So I had to hustle. I had to do research. I had to make the phone calls. I had to do the donor like appointments. I had to coordinate calendars. I, very quickly, I saw as the sole founder of an organization that I didn't have the bandwidth to do this, plus create the website, plus do what the donors were suggesting, plus work with program, like each of those pieces. So I asked myself the question, like, how might I create a simple solution to the problem of not having enough time? Uh, and there was a book by Tim Ferriss called The Three-Hour Workweek. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and I um, and I started reading that, and I was like, you know what? I think I can do this. I believe that I can go online, 
find a virtual assistant, start working with them, and uh, start unloading everything that's challenging for me to do. And plus, I'm on an audio. I'm not a great writer as far as like motor coordination wise, and so I could voice dictate all of my emails and everything else, and just constantly be on the go and having that work done. Uh, and I started doing that. And and where I was struggling previously to raise you know, ten thousand in a month, all of a sudden it was going up to fifteen or twenty. Um, and our biggest month ended up being 50 because I had the time to focus and be in the zone on making those meaningful asks and developing relationships. And now it's, you know, millions of dollars that <laughs> I've raised and also like for boards that I serve on and others have really helped make that shift um, for uh, and mindset shift for other nonprofits. That's fascinating. So where um, you're the first, I, I, you know, in 300 plus conversations, and I'm an admirer of Tim Ferriss's ideas and work and podcast and um, uh, books. Um, you're the, but you're the, probably the first person on the podcast who's referenced um, Tim's Tim's stuff. Um, so 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 have we? Have you have you sort of conceived of an of a way to sort of do? Have you conceived of a way to do that in a, you know, what is it, a three, four hour work, work, work week? Yeah, four hour. Right. Yeah, yeah, four hour work week. Have you figured I've, out how to do that? Yeah, well, I mean, clearly I've done it and I've made it a three hour work week. So not only did I change it from a four, I changed it to a three. No, I'm just oh, three, uh, three is your number. Three is my number. Three is not your number. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> so, so does, does it, does it, does it, does it ultimately sort of lead you to sort of differentiate? This is one of the things I talk to a lot of our clients about. Does it ultimately sort of cause you to sort of differentiate between the type of donor and the level of commitment that the donor is is willing to make? And, and, and I don't even so much mean that in terms of dollar amount, but I think one of the biggest problems that we have in fundraising is, is that we're, commi- we're, we're committing so much time and energy with individuals who ultimately aren't committed to a long-term meaningful relationship with the organization that therefore translates into much more meaningful and sustainable support. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and, and as, as you know, and as you've said in previous podcasts, like so much of it is uh, indeed about the relationship and, um, and, uh, and those elements. So I, the way that I look at it in this instance is I ask myself the question, like how might I use my virtual talent to amplify the ability that I have to have a relationship between my donors and my organization or my donors and me. Uh, some of the simple things that I do is my, my assistant is with me almost the entire work day. Uh, and so every, they become a thought partner for me because so often as fundraisers, like we're in our own heads or we're just talking, but we don't have folks to bounce ideas off of or or people to say like hey have you thought about calling this person to fund this they had mentioned something so he's keeping up with my notes he's being uh like actively feeding me different ideas on how to solve problems and sometimes he's actually dialing the phone numbers for me in case i get nervous i have some anxiety stuff going on so sometimes i get i get like hesitant or procrastinate calling the people that i need to call and he's like brad got to do it. Like, I know you don't want to call this person, but they're going to write you a check and you have to have that conversation. Uh, and, and it helps keep me focused as someone who's wearing so many hats and spinning so many plates uh, to stay in that lane and to know what's going on. On the other part is that booking, like scheduling is really hard. Um, 
the nonprofit that I run, Career Up Now, is a mentorship organization. And so we have like top industry leaders from across the United States whose time is very, who is very meaningfully occupied. And it's hard to get on their calendars uh, for students, much less for to make a solicitation of them. Um, and so he handle he coordinates my assistant coordinates with their assistant and and gets gets me booked for short segments and i and i go into those prepared but i'm not having to get distracted by the back and forth and and does this work or will that work uh, which also enables me to keep my head in the game rather than in, on logistics or operations of how to get those actual appointments you know you remind me uh the the notion the word the word conversation sort of strikes me as particularly important to perhaps talk about one of the one of the concerns that i've always had about the way that a lot of small shop fundraising you know small fundraising operations sort of struggle with is they're having so many internal conversations at the expense of not having enough external conversations. And what I'm hearing, especially in the, in the small, you know, anecdotal story that you just shared, um, it sounds like what you're doing is, is you're eliminating, which is a very insightful sort of way to put that. And I don't know that I've ever done that. I've no, I don't know if I've ever, I've ever articulated it that way. Perhaps you all have the idea of sort of by reducing the number of internal conversations that you're having, because, you know, whatever the conversation of sorts it is, we we always sort of we think that we have to be invested in it, but it sounds like you guys are limiting the number of internal conversations in, as or in order to increase the ratio of external. And when I say external, I'm talking about the conversations with donors. Wow, I've never thought that was that was really profound, and what a great synthesis! <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, well, you, and I'll, you and I, you and I, you and I'll brand that that concept and sell it together. <laughs> meetings, internal meetings, are such a time and energy suck. And yeah, especially for like the active fundraiser that needs to be hitting like pounding the pavement and and bringing in the dollars to run an important mission. So that that's really interesting. Those those conversations often, and and then all of a sudden, I, I've pulled myself out of those meetings because I'm constantly going, and I just check in. What I've also done, something maybe a little cheap, but I have my assistant, uh, it, like form a buffer between me and my board or me and my team, um, and so they'll uh, he'll also act as like, well, Bradley wants you to know this, or this is what here's an update from so. Sometimes if we can put a, a boundary between ourselves and the ones that take our, like suck our time, um, yeah. that we need to be doing what we need to be doing in, or like, for example, there's this, this government meeting that I have to sit on and I have my assistant go there in my place, uh, and takes the notes there and just reports back to me because my presence isn't really required to be there. Um, but then I can focus more on my fundraising and my like relationship and those things instead of sitting on a three-hour meeting where there's going to be one takeaway that doesn't even apply to me but it's important to have a presence for my organization there uh and and that's been also a really great way for for me to stay focused and just keep what the eye is on the prize at the same time uh so much of i i want to know what's going on with everyone in their lives like at that very moment so i have a list that every day my assistant like gets up with my major donors and just researches them for like five minutes 
And if there's any big news or anything reporting that maybe isn't in a feed, they check out their Facebook and their LinkedIn to see if there's anything going on in that space. They report it to me right away and I call them and I'm like, hey, I just saw that you were you know, on, on CNBC this morning or I saw... Right. Like Mazel Tov on on the bar mitzvah this past weekend, like you know, right? Those sorts of things, and that, having that real time is also a change because otherwise, I get I go onto social media and I start checking their stuff out, and then I'm watching cat videos. <laughs> so, so not a great use. So there's 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 two things that what you've shared thus far sort of get me thinking, and the first one is is the idea of what I call a fundraising CEO. Um, and 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 perhaps it's because you're a small operation, because you're you know you're a smaller organization that doesn't have this huge, um, you know, you're a small shop, um, yeah. and and perhaps perhaps you've concerned yourself or or you've determined that you're going to be what I routinely refer to as a fundraising CEO. It sounds like some of this is just a consequence of you having made the decision that fundraising is. First and foremost, a priority, uh, you know, a, a primary responsibility of the CEO's job, and therefore you've got to design systems and processes in order to get the to get it done and to get it done in highly efficient and effective sort of ways. Is there something like that going on, or is that just a, um, or is the notion of a, you know, the idea of a fundraising CEO just a sort of a byproduct of, you know, you just making sense of how all this works? It's such a great term, fundraising CEO. I'm the quintessential fundraising CEO, whether I like <laughs> that's, it. That's what I, yeah. <laughs> I like it or not. Uh, although, yeah. it, definitely that's true. And, wh- and what it makes me ask the question of is then how might these strategies apply to individuals that are, are solely fundraising or are just development officers or uh and and I, I can't speak from my own experience as you said I'm a fundraising CEO, but I can for some of the boards that I'm on uh, that have kind of adopted these strategies into their operations um, has has helped them raise recently uh, one of the uh, nonprofits which I'm, I actually didn't expect it to be this successful, but I, they just raised over like five million in an online like fundraising campaign, and they're a, they're a niche organization like they're in Israel like. Jewish organization. They're pretty niche, but they, they raised a ton because they spent, um, they had in their sales force about 20,000 like entries. Uh, yeah. and they didn't have all of the information that they needed for them. And they needed more advanced information for their, uh, beyond just like giving levels and wealth and those pieces, but going more into stuff that you can't just pull off of, a a, a search. Uh, research that actually needed to be done that was more in depth. So uh, we did. We they they put like ten virtual assistants that were working thirty hours uh, a week for a couple of weeks and just filled in everything that was left um, in their database. Uh, and then they were able to leverage all of that in this uh, in this in this very successful campaign that they did. Which for previous years they'd only raised like a couple hundred thousand dollars. Um, which also supported their major gifts asks and also like put their organization in alignment because like CRM management's like a beast for, for <laughs> development and fundraising. Right. Like we, a lot of us just really want spreadsheets. <laughs> like, 
Right. Just give me, yeah, get, just give me an Excel spreadsheet with 150 names on it and I'll just, I'll get my job done. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's like an example on the development side. So, okay. So you get the fundraising CEO idea. So through, through the lens of the stories, the story that you've just thus far sort of shared and the ideas that you're sort of simmering on and, and, and sharing with our audience. One of the things that I would say, and I'm interested to, we'll t- sort of take the conversation. This is a this is an opportunity for you to sort of um, tell us a little bit more about yourself. I would say that the person who lives up to, who totally lives up to the potential to be a fundraising CEO, CEO, cannot be a control freak. Mm-hmm. And I think that's fundamentally the problem that we have in the sector today when we talk about, you know, I think there's a lot of ba- retiring baby boomers who are vacating their jobs and they've sort of they, fundraising has, for the most part, throughout their professional careers, they've sort of winged it. And we have this younger generation that's assuming these executive director roles, these leadership roles. And oftentimes what are by necessity a fundraising CEO job, but they haven't gotten over their control issues. And I don't think, I think these, I think these sort of characteristics, I think the person who is, who can really truly live up to the idea of being a fundraising CEO, um, inversely cannot be a, uh, a control freak. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's 100% the truth. It really resonates. Uh, and, and, and I, I would say, for me, I just don't like looking stupid or being embarrassed, right? Like you can make mistakes, but like, please just don't make mistakes that make me look stupid or are embarrassing. Right. Uh, and, and that's kind of my bar, <laughs> like, which I have no, most, most mistakes that people make, like I are, especially like on my team are not going to be humiliating or end us up in the press or whatever, Usually it's like it said Mr. instead of Dr. or whatever, something like that. Um, but you do, I do have to be, the way that I strategically approached the way of being, um, feeling okay about letting things go and delegating, because uh, at the same time, I do very much like to control my environment, uh, is that I ask myself the question, um, first of all, what are the tasks that I'm doing every hour, every day, every week, every month? And I create a list with that. And then I ask myself the question, which items on this list um, am I okay with being accomplished with 80 or 90% accuracy? Yeah. And I go down the list and there's things that, like, that I, are non-negotiables that can't be like need to be 100% accurate and I can't risk it until I have a strong relationship and know it'll be done right. Um, and then I, I find that there's a lot of things that I'm okay with like 80, 90%. And then I start delegating those pieces and putting those as consistent operations for my assistants. And that helps free up my plate a lot. Be- beside being a CEO, like a fundraising CEO, I also have two other companies that I'm the CEO of and would have no ability to be a serial entrepreneur if I didn't have, wasn't able to constantly free up my plate. Yeah. So what we, what I tend to see, so uh, uh, with our consultancy, we divide, we have what we call lane one and lane two fundraising. Lane two tends to be on the other side of the initial, you know, after the initial gift has been received and you've said, thank you for that. And you have the opportunity to move that relationship in a very meaningful direction and consequently, you know, secure some much more, oftentimes much more meaningful and consistent support. But what I tend to see sort of using this, this uh, control issue is sort of the, 
you know, Bradley, there's a difference between worrying yourself about how right or wrong the gala or the golf tournament might go versus worrying yourself over um, the, uh, you know, how well the meeting with Mr. and Mrs. Smith go at the, you know, the, uh, you know, when you're having dinner with them next week and you're going to ask them for a gift that's, you know, exponentially larger than perhaps any gift you're going to get at the gala last week. And I think that's where, I think that's where, you know, I was just having this conversation with a client last night. That's where the, 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 the problem comes from. It's, you know, even, even to the extent that we are control freaks in some context, it's where do you place that control? Where do you prioritize that Mm -hmm. attention? Where do you insist on that 80 to 90%? I mean, like, you know, Giving Tuesday, for example, look, Giving Tuesday, like a gala in a golf tournament, if it botches up, if it messes up, if you, you know, if something gets misprinted, if it's, it's just, it's just scale, you know, to the nth degree. Um, But it's so much activity going on that even the possibility of somebody noticing that you mess something up is probably very unlikely. And it's probably not going to have all the, all the consequences that we think it does. But yet that tends to be the place where where I see that control freak sort of persona sort of simmer up too much is, oh, my gosh, we've got to do the gala, the golf tournament or giving Tuesday to this, you know, most perfect, you know, um, level. And what it comes at is the expense of getting that relationship with Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Right. You follow Mm, me? Yeah. Yeah. That makes a, a ton of sense. Yeah. So which of the, so where, so where are you, I mean, you seem like an aware guy. Where are you finding that? Where do you slip up on that? Are you the guy that majors on the gala and the golf tournament too much? Well, I, I personally believe that that's a gala and golf tournaments and those things are great for PR and maybe like, okay, right. And new friends, but that's not the word you're going to like organizations aren't raising their money from making individual asks from individuals with significant philanthropic capacity it's it's a missed market or a massive missed opportunity uh so i would say like my challenge in that space is i am uh incredibly insecure when it comes to putting things out in the world and i can get it up to that 99.9 percent done but actually pressing like go or send or releasing it out into the world is is a is a moment of paralysis for me And so having uh, someone on my team, whether it's a newsletter or Giving Tuesday or whatever the case may be, that's actually the one that's finishing that off and making sure it goes out and telling me like, hey, it's fine. Just press, I'll send it. And then they do it on my behalf. It saves me hours of worrying and worrying holds me back um and just on a personal level yeah, whereas yeah. i could have spent those hours of worrying on conversations with like individuals with significant philanthropic capacity or mega donors that i really enjoy talking to and having conversations with instead of fretting about a, a word being wrong on a on an email and so so that's where it kind of enables me to step away from that part which is really kind of bogging me down like with a thousand different pieces. And when you're one-on-one in a conversation, it's so much more forgiving. Uh, like if you, if you miss say something, like whatever, then you laugh. Or, but like when it goes out in print, an email, and I feel like that from my other co-CEOs, like friends um, that, are, um, that are also CEOs, fundraising CEOs of organizations, that for some of them too also boxes them down. 
um, and would much rather be with those individuals and spending their time, focus, and energy with them. That's interesting. So basically what we're saying, because you're exactly right, and this loops us back to almost exactly where you started the conversation, the degree to which you can sort of relinquish control to that to that assistant or to that business partner, to whomever that is, oftentimes comes as a result of trust. And it's maybe not so much a trust that um, I'm, th- I'm thinking about a conversation I'm going to have with a client later this week. And it's almost like uh, I'm prepping for this conversation right here in, in our conversation. The uh, that, that that's really what it is, isn't it? It's it's the it's the extent to which um, I, I think Seth Godin talks about that. About the, the the a lot of us are very fearful of shipping, right? We there's all of us do that in some context. We don't want to ship, and so what you're saying to me, Brad, is that you've have you have you have partnered with people within your organization who do the shipping for you. Um, I'm guessing that uh, it comes with a lot of self awareness and a hell of a lot of trust. Am I right? One hundred percent, one hundred percent, both, and that was so spot on. Fear, I hadn't heard Seth say that. Fear yeah. of shipping. Yeah, that's that's what I think. That's what he calls it. I think that's in one of uh, Seth Godin's books. Is the idea of ship? We don't want to, but I but I think that's what plagues the. That's almost why I talk about, for example, the the notion of the fundraising CEO a lot because I want the CEO more than even all the fundraisers, even an army of fundraisers. I want the CEO to think critically enough about what it is we're doing here to the point where they, where they sort of, you know, they're savvy on some of this stuff. Like, like they could engage in this conversation and think through the idea that sometimes we're majoring in the minors and, and we don't necessarily need to like right now, I would guess that you having spent as much time fundraising, when you start hiring a team of gift officers, you're going to be well prepared to do that because you've done the work yourself. I think that's one of the big problems. We don't have enough. Fun, we don't have enough CEOs who've done enough of the in the trenches sort of work. Now I'm on sort of a soapbox of my own. Um, we don't have enough people who've been in that fundraising CEO role, and then we can't. And then we wonder why we can't make sense of the fact why people are not so successful in these jobs. Yeah, you know, what you just shared also reminds me of something. We're going through a strategic plan right now. So hopefully we'll scale. Our, our organization is in five cities right now, but the goal is yeah, we'll be in like 20. Uh, and, uh, and, and so we will then have actual fundraisers. Like we'll have development offices. Sure, of and course. One of, one of the things that I'm committed to uh, in that space, which is different, is every time someone comes onto my team, uh, whether it's programmatic, development, uh, I'm going to make sure, or I already make sure that they have their own like top notch virtual assistant that they start off with success of being able and go through pr- training with me and others, um, to be able to start off delegating and trusting from the beginning so that again, they can focus on their superpowers and it doesn't, uh, and, and as, and as much as off of their plate, just so that they can focus on the exact task that I need to, for them to do in the best way that's going to accomplish the goals that we need to accomplish for our organization. So before I let you go, Brad, uh, and, and I want to hear about the organization, I want to make sure our listeners know how to find you if they're interested in continuing the conversation. But this idea of yeah. superpowers, I, I, you know, if you had to sort of put from your posture in an organization where you're particularly at in the fundraising CEO sort of role, what are those superpowers? What are those three or four? 
one of those things that I, I, I always I always like to and my kids. It drives my kids nuts because they hate my dad's number three because dad's always trying to zero in on the, figure out what the three are. Don't add too many and don't have too few. But what are those three superpowers that you have? And does it line up? I guess my my other question is, does it line up with what it means to be a fundraising CEO? What are those three superpowers you've got? Personally, that I have. Oh, I don't care personally no, or not, professionally. Is yeah. it, no, I mean, like personally, professionally, pertaining to me, not others. Right? I, I, you're asking. I, I'm asking. I mean, you've used that word superpowers, and I want to make yeah. sure I clarify before we hang up the phone today. Um, if if we're aligning up, yeah, are, are, are your definitions of what your superpowers are? Do they? I guess I'm curious to see if they are consistent with what I would say should be the superpowers of a fundraising CEO. That's what I'm asking. Yeah, I think I think one of them is taking everything in stride. Yeah, I like that. Um, like being able to to take a a view of the of the forest rather than being stuck in the trees. Like totally. the ability yeah. to to jump in between the two very shift between the two very easily and creating. Um, creating new solutions for problems that haven't been tried and being okay with failing at them. Yeah. Yeah. See, see, and, and if I think about that, if I think about those characteristics, that's a, that's not a, you can't deliver on that for yourself. I like to think that in a lot of ways, that's, that's some of those characteristics. That's, that's what I would like to think some of my superpowers are. My wife might disagree with me, <laughs> but, um, but, uh, when when I'm delivering on those at the at the best that I can, those are also times when control. Getting back to my remarks about control, control gets in the way of all those things. Mm, you say yeah. you, you can't deliver on any of that. If you, if you want to be a big macro, innovative sort of long term thinker, being a control freak of the day to day in the weeds of you know what's going on like today and yesterday, you know, control is going to get in your way. Am I right? One hundred percent. One hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So Bradley, we uh we've had a wonderful conversation. We lose our listeners about thirty minutes in. Um, I want to make sure that we get a few minutes to to uh reiterate who you are, where people can find you. Perhaps somebody's interested in learning more about your organization. Sounds like you're a pretty innovative guy. you you've got your hands in a number of things. So if somebody's listening to our conversation today, how do they find you? And and remind us who the organization is. Maybe tell us about the website, where they where they go. And, um, and then the last thing I always like to ask added, added in there is who's perhaps the person you want to hear from? Is there a particular person you'd be inclined to, you know, is there a person that finds themselves in a particular place in the world where you'd say, I'd like to hear from that person today? Oh gosh. Wow. Okay. So, uh, I can be found. Thank you for that. Uh, I can, uh, I can be found if you just type in Bradley Caro Cook, B-R-A-D-L-E-Y-C-A-R-O Cook onto Google. I think I had the first couple pages. So I'm very findable and reachable. Yeah. Uh, I'm the executive director of an organization called Career Up Now. And uh, we, we're creating intentional communities of emerging professionals and community and industry leaders that come together to form personal, professional, and Jewish connections. Uh, and then, um, and then I, I think the thing that I really would like any of the listeners to know about me is I'm one of those individuals who's, uh, who makes myself available. So if anyone has like questions or like I like helping other people that are doing good in the world um, and just volunteering my time or be a thought partner. So if anyone like has questions about virtual assistance or about like 
whatever came up in the conversation today. Like I'm very easily accessible. I mean, you'll, you'll be talking to my assistant Iggy, but like I, I make time and would love to be helpful um, to, uh, to, to anyone. And, and the person that, um, gosh, that I'd really like to hear from right now, um, I'm going to go with, oh gosh, I'm not good on my feet like this. I, I mean, there's, <laughs> there's names that are like popping up and right now I'd, I'd like to do a deep dive into Elon Musk's head and like, just know what is that guy thinking? Um, yeah. or at least have him articulate. Cause when you said about the part of control freak, uh, and not being in the woods and being, he, he has to delegate a lot and run so many corporations and what's going on with Twitter and has, you know, I, I'm very interested to, you know, hear from him. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like the idea, Brad, of, uh, our, uh, you know, the expression, our greatest strengths are also of our greatest weakness. You know, I find myself reflecting on your question about Musk and the idea of, uh, of control, um, him being able to sort of operate in whatever sort of high functioning level, wherever he does tend to be more highly functional, um, perhaps bites him in the ass every once in a while too. And so I, I think that's what, uh, when we think about the superpowers that you just described about yourself, for example, you have to both be aware of sort of where that, where that works for you and where that gets you in trouble. Um, and, uh, I do. I say this with cl- with clients all the time. It tends to be those places where our control freak sort of button alarm starts to go off the most, where it, you know, really just gets us in trouble, you know, where you totally. feel the, you know, um, which I think is a fascinating sort of way to wrap up the conversation. You've brought us, you know, full circle around this idea of having it. So the individual's name is Iggy. Is that the, is that he or yeah, she? Iggy. That's the, that's the assistant. That's, that's, that's your, assistant. Yeah, we'll uh, we can, we'll have Iggy on the podcast at some point in the future, and we'll sort of check the accuracy of this conversation. Um, <laughs> Bradley, it has certainly been a pleasure. Uh, you're always welcome back. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read in this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional? Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.